All right, power in the presence, part six. Let's pray and jump into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true and it is truth and it works in our lives all the time. Even when we're not looking, you're behind the scenes working on our behalf. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you help my inability to communicate. Give me utterance and give each individual the exact spoken word, the rhema that they need to hear to make course corrections in real life, real time and experience all the riches, honor, and life that you have for us, and experience your power, and experience your presence. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. All right, here's our first jumping off scripture. We've been, I'm going to go over a lot of these same scriptures again, and it's not that it's review. I just want to keep plowing through this field, right? We want to keep plowing this ground up and taking this, this word and sowing it in there and so that we get it down deep on the inside. John 14, 16, Jesus saying, I'll pray the Father. And he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not or perceives him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he shall be in you. Now, this happened before Jesus died and rose again and was seated at the right hand of the Father. So the Holy Spirit was with them, but he wasn't in them yet. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus says he's, getting, he's ascending up to heaven for the last time uh, after the 40 days here on the earth. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and on the uttermost parts of the earth. So we see that the, first the Holy Spirit is with us. Then he makes his uh, abode in us. He sets up shop in us. We're, and we'll see this again in a minute here in the scripture that we're the temple. And then when he comes up on us, we walk in power. Remember, like Samson, right? It was like the Iron Man suit. When the Spirit comes up on you, it's for a reason and a season, for a time and a purpose. You get the supernatural power to do, right? And so that's the difference. There's the presence of God, which he's with you and he abides in you, but there's no power in that, right? So, and these are some uh, aspects of the presence. His glory is part of his presence, his brilliance. His ways, his personhood, his face, his attributes, his characteristics, his name, his personality, right? So this is all the stuff. And this, once you know his ways, right, you'll begin to understand these other things. This is all part of the presence. And then the power of God is when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. It's also known as the anointing, the hand, the arm, the finger of God, his works, and his acts. Two completely different things, separate. Power is separate from presence. You could be in his presence and never experience the power of God. And you can experience the power of God and never really experience his presence, right? To have a victorious life, we need both. I keep saying this over and over because there's so much, uh, there's so many, it's so sad for me, so sad to see people that, uh, and, and like I said, like my, my puppy, he doesn't know my ways, he doesn't know my name, he doesn't know my personality, he doesn't know, right? He just knows my presence, And there's a lot of folks that when they get born again, they never get past that stage of knowing the master's presence or God's presence. They never know his ways. And that's what we're trying to focus in on right now is knowing, and I can't get off this, right? Knowing his ways. Once you know his ways, right, then you know how to uh, not just adopt or cooperate with those ways, but adopt those ways. Remember this in Psalm 103, verse 7, it says that God made known his ways unto Moses, but his acts under the children of Israel. So the ways were known by Moses, the acts, the, you know, the power was known by the children of Israel. And we saw that didn't work out too good for them. So I want to keep looking at this in Exodus 33, 11. We keep coming back to this because it's just so important to get this down on the inside. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face or presence to presence as a man speaks unto his friend, and he turned again to the camp of the servant of Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man, departed not from the tabernacle. And, the Mo- and then Moses said to the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and you didn't let me know what kind of people you would send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have, and you have found grace in my sight. In verse 13, he says, Now I therefore I pray you, if I have found grace in, my, in your sight, if, you, if I have, then show me now your way, that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight and consider this this nation your people. And the Lord said, 
my presence to Moses, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And in verse 15, Moses said, if your presence goes not with me, carry me not up hence. He said, listen, if your presence doesn't go, I'm not going. I'm only going where the presence is. So show me your way, teach me. And if you're not going somewhere, I'm not going. Now, if you guys know the story of Ruth, that's the book of Ruth. You could read that story. She uh, is a Moabitess, right? That's one of Lot's descendants. They're actually enemies of Israel. But uh, she's the daughter-in-law of this uh, covenant-keeping Jew, Naomi. And her husband dies, and she's the daughter-in-law. And then she says, "I'm wherever you go, I'm going. I won't go anywhere that you don't go. Right. And and so this is that same kind of picture of what Moses is saying. Like, wherever you go, I'm going. Like, and, and we saw it with Elijah and Elijah. Elijah kept trying to tell Elijah, we may look at that in future weeks, hey, stay here. Stay here in Gilgal. He's like, no, nah, I'm still, but I have to go over to, you know, Bethel. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to Bethel with you. Then they get to Bethel. He says, stay here in Bethel. I have to go to Jericho. He's like, nope, I'm going to Jericho with you. Then he gets to Jericho. He's like, stay here in Jericho. I got to go across the Jordan. He's like, nope, I'm going across the Jordan with you. Like, so, and this is like, this is one of God's ways that he always gives you a way out. He gives you a cutout. You don't have to go with him. And in fact, he's looking to see, Right, he keeps giving you a chance not to go with him because he wants you to like he wants you to want to be with him, if that makes sense. Right. So it's not like I make my kids go to the store with me or I make my kids go where I go. I ask them if they want to go with me. It's totally up to them. And listen, I don't hold it against them if they don't want to go food shopping with me, but I love it when we're together. Right. And when they we are together, right, we're in each other's presence. We get to know each other's ways. And I want to look at that and we become friends. And that's where we're going. Right. The last couple of weeks we talked about what it was like to be a bond slave and a servant. Right. And then uh, and then we're going to move on to friend. And that's what we're looking at. So in First Corinthians six seventeen, remember this, it says that he that is joined one of my favorite scriptures, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication, every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple, the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, right? So he's in you. This is what your your temple now, and we'll look at this in future weeks, but the temple and the tabernacle was where God made his presence on earth before Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil in the Holy of Holies where that separated the presence of God from everybody else inside where the Ark of the Covenant used to be. That veil was ripped from top to bottom. Now it's uh, the presence is not in the temple, the temple, the physical temple anymore, which isn't even there anymore. After 70 AD, it got destroyed. Is now the Holy Ghost. That's why it's not there. And God left that. And now the his temple is your body. That's why it says in Romans 12, 1, to present your body a living sacrifice. And that's why it says right here, your body, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. But God be thanked that you were servants of sin, in Romans six seventeen, but now, and you obeyed that from the heart, from the form of doctrine was delivered to you in Romans six eighteen. but being made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness, or the covenant, right? So you weren't bought with a price, and the Holy Ghost makes his abode, his abode in your body. That's his temple. And before you were servants or bond slaves unto sin, but now you've obeyed, right? This, you've been born again. You obey the new teachings, right? In your heart. Right? And we, uh, Kimmy and Drew and I had a conversation this week about how he writes under the new, new Testament, the new covenant. He writes his laws on our hearts and in our minds. So that's obeying your conscience. So you don't have to know all this scripture. You don't have to know the law. You're not saddled with it. All you have to do is what your conscience tells you once you're born again. And it makes you a slave, right, of the covenant of righteousness. And we saw this, that you never stop being a servant, but we get to fulfill the position as heir. And as we grow up, we get responsibility. And then there's this possibility that you get to become his friend once you know his ways. So look, here's the, here's the progression is you get born again, right? And you're a child. Spiritually, you're a child. Galatians 4.1 says that now that I say this, that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from the slave. Even though he's Lord over all, he's still under tutors and governors until the appointed time of the father. Even so, we, 
when we were children in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, and under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, right? Abide with you ever. That's where the spirit, the Holy Ghost, temple of the Holy Ghost, and you're crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, here we see this progression that a child is the heir, but you get no responsibilities. You don't know his ways. You're still under governors and tutors. You don't have a direct relationship with the father necessarily because you don't know you're like the puppy. You might know his presence, but you definitely don't get any power. Right. And when my kids were younger, like I didn't give Jack the keys or even Michaela. Michaela drives my challenger now. It's her car. Right. And she drives around. She's a 16 year old, uh, right, teenage girl driving, you know, this challenger. And people are like, is that your car? She's like, yeah, it's my car. That's a pretty nice car for somebody your age. Yes, it is. Right. But I didn't give it to her if I didn't trust her. She had to grow up enough. I like, she didn't drive the car when she was first learning how to drive. Okay. So here's the progression. You get born again, you're like, and you're a servant. You're a child. Yes, you're an heir. Yes, you are. But you have no responsibilities. You don't know your parents. Just like my kids, when they were first born, they didn't know they were infants. They had no idea what my ways were. They knew my presence. When I came into the room, if they were crying, you know, in their crib, and that, you know, that's why I would put like a T-shirt that I used to wear in the crib with the kids so they could like kind of smell my presence and be, oh, he's here, you know. It's kind of a fake, you know, way to trick them out to keep them comfortable, but they didn't know me. They didn't know my ways and they certainly didn't operate in the power, right? Uh, of, of the covenant of being a family member. Now they do, they're full grown and we're also friends, right? That's where we want to go at the end is friends where we know each other's ways. And we'll see what the, what the Bible says about friends. But I want you to see this in Proverbs 17 too. It says that a wise slave or servant shall become the master or have rule over the son that causes dishonor or shame. And that slave will share part of the inheritance among the brethren. And we saw that the last couple of weeks of bond slave. You never stop being a servant or a slave, but what we want to do is to graduate to full-grown sons. And again, you don't have to be friends of God as a full-grown son. You could be physically mature, right? And spiritually mature, both, right? Because I know physically mature heirs, they're full-grown sons and daughters, but they don't know the ways and they're definitely not friends with their fathers these billionaires that I used to protect. They're not their friends. They don't hang out together. They don't play golf. They have like some barbecues and stuff, but they're not friends. But they're still heirs and full grown and they get responsibility for the empire, but they're not friends. That's not my heart's desire is that my kids would be my friends, not only heir, you know, have responsibility for the family empire that we're building, right? The covenant empire, but also that we would be friends. And that's my desire with my heavenly father is that I would be full grown. Yes, have responsibility. Oh, you know, know the plans and the commands. We'll talk about that later, the commands and the plans, but also be a friend. And I want to see what the Bible defines as friendship. So what does that look like, Andrew, to be a friend of God, to be a friend? Well, in John 15, 13, Jesus said this, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. For you are my friends if you do whatever I command you or whatever I say. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. So here's his definition, the Bible definition. Remember the Bible, our covenant is a legal document and the document always defines the terms contained in it, just like every other legal document. So here's the definition of friend is that you have greater love, greater love you have no for friend, when you lay down your life. That's, there's no greater love than a friend. So laying down your life is part of being friendship. And I'll look at that part of being friends. And then the next thing is you do what your friend says. And then the next thing is, is that the servant knows the commands, but the friends get to know the plans. So here's the thing you have to lay down and, and we'll look at, we're only going to look at the first one today, right? Greater love hath no man than this that lays down a life, lays down his life, a man or a woman lays down their life, a person lays down their life. Let's make it gender neutral, right? Because this is for anybody. If you're a human, there, you can have no greater friend than another human lays down their life for you. That's a definition of friendship. Now, 
in the Greek, there are three words in the Greek New Testament. There are three words for life. Bios, natural life. Suke, which is your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. Or we could say it is your agenda, your agenda for your life. And then the last one is zoe. That's the instantly and constantly renewed perpetual, or you know it like this in the Bible, eternal life. Eternal life is zoe. That's the life of God. Now, so anytime you see the word life in the English translations, you have to go check which life is this talking about? Because most people think greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends talking about your physical life. If I gave up my bios, my natural life. And look, there was guys that I served with that laid down their lives for me. We were not friends. We didn't like each other, right? We, we looked out for each other because we're on the team, but they're not somebody that I would hang out with. They're not in my inner circle, but they gave up their natural life for those of us others of us that we, so we could come home. But that does not, now we're like, well, now they're our friends, but they're dead. They're not our friends. They're not here anymore. So that it doesn't, it, that's not it. It's not physical bios. It's not natural life. This word life in this verse, John 15, 13, is the word suke. It's your soul. It's your mind, will, and emotions. So let's, let's read it like this. Greater love has no person than this, that that person would lay down their mind, will, and emotions for their friends. Let's shorten that up, that no person has greater love, right? There's no greater love that a person than this, that that person lays down their own agenda for their friends. So it's not my will to my friends, but your will. It's not what's good for me, but what's good for you. And in fact, what's good for me gets put on the back burner. That's a friend. This is the Bible definition of a friend is that I give up whatever is good for me in order to make sure that it's good for you. And if I suffer, that's a true friend. That my agenda, my mind, whatever my thoughts are, my opinions, whatever my beliefs are, whatever my emotions are, how I feel about a subject, gets put on the back burner for you. There's no greater love than that. And it's very difficult. Giving up your life, your physical life, your bios, been done over and over throughout the centuries and the millennial since man has been here. We'll do it. Very difficult to give up your own agenda. Very difficult to put your thoughts and your beliefs and your attitudes and your feelings on the back burner and put somebody else's ahead of yours. This is what I do with my kids. I make sure that they're fed they're clothed, and they get, that's why my daughter drives the Challenger. I rarely drive my own car anymore because I like her. I, li I know how it makes me feel driving the Challenger. I like her when she drives into the high school parking lot, That how it makes her feel, and it sets her apart from everybody else, above only and not beneath, right? This is the covenant, right? So I put my own agenda behind. Now, it's easier to do with your kids. That's, but they're not my, she might not, she is my friend, but doesn't necessarily have to be. That's why a lot of these billionaires, their heirs are not their friends. They don't put their agenda on the back burner for them. They don't lay down whatever their wants. Listen, when Jack was growing up in high school, he's liked fishing and he had this kayak. I don't like, I'm not an outdoor guy. I mean, I made my living in the outdoors for like 30 years. I could care less about being out there, you know, in the elements. If I don't have to be, I'm not. But to be in Jack's space, instead of making him come into my space, we bought kayaks together and we bought a fishing rod and he taught me how to fish and I would go to the lake with him. So I'm putting my agenda on the back burner for him. That How many of you know that increased our friendship? And I still practice that today with all my kids and my friends. That's why I have very few friends because I, listen, if you have a bunch of friends and like true friends that, that fit this definition, you cannot have your own life. You're always giving to other, but that's really what this is, is that you're a giver. And I lay down, man, I don't feel like getting off the couch today. I don't feel like, you know, washing the dishes for my wife. I don't feel like, so I lay down my agenda and I get off the couch and I go wash the dishes because it's for her good. She was at work today. I don't want, you know, she's not coming home to a dirty sink. When everybody in the family has this friendship and we're, all of us, you know, are putting our own agendas on the back burner and we're givers. It works out so good because now it's just a contest of who could put the other one's needs ahead of the other and the other one's wants ahead of the other. 
that's the true definition of friend. That's what this, the Bible, dev- now, if you want to be God's friend, that means not only uh, it works both ways. I have to put my, lay my agenda down for God, but then when I do that, he also lays down his agenda for us. See, it's a two-edged sword. We don't really think about that. We don't, listen, if you're God's friend, you lay down your agenda for him. And he's your friend. That means he lays down his agenda for you. Remember in John 15, 14, Jesus said, if you're my friends, you do whatever I say. That cuts both ways. I do whatever God says because I'm his friend. He does whatever I say because I'm his fr- because he's my friend. That might be hard for you to get. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is hard to get. This is the covenant. If you remember from the covenant for rookie series, the reason that God asked Abraham for Isaac, give me your only son. The reason was so that God could give Jesus to Abraham. I can give you my only son. Covenant is reciprocal. And we'll look at this in the scriptures. But I want you to have in your head, this goes, this is a two-edged, it cuts both ways. Not only do I have to lay my agenda down for God, but he lays his agenda down for me. And we could see that in Abraham, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham short circuits the promise and he goes and sleeps with the maid, Hagar, and they have a son, Ishmael, not the covenant promise son. Ishmael is not. It's, it's the counterfeit, right? So when God finally shows up and Ishmael's like 13 or 14 years old, God's like, what are you doing? That's not the, you know, and, but now Abraham's emotionally attached to Ishmael. So he's like, oh God, can't we just skip that part? I don't want Isaac. He ain't even here yet. I love Ishmael. Listen, we're doing the, just can't, can't he just live before you? Can't we just do Ishmael? So God says, listen, I'll tell you what, you're going to have to disown him. He's not, but I will take care of him and I will bless him. And don't you worry about it. I'm going to take care and I will bless Ishmael. And he has, that's why we have the mess on the planet we have today, right? The Islamic religion comes out, they trace their lineage back to Allah through Ishmael. God's agenda is not that people would be getting beheaded and blown up and all this other stuff. Taliban, right? Going on to go to the mosque on Friday and find out and, and you know, learn that all of God's people are the real, you know, God's people, like as in Christians, are the great Satan and the Jews are the other Satan and we got to kill them all. That's not God's agenda. He laid down, he knew that was going to happen when he told Abraham, all right, listen, for your sake, because you're my friend, I'm going to bless Ishmael, even though this is a complete disaster and it's going to be for a lot of generations on the planet. There's going to be a lot of problems out of this. So, but that's not my will, but it's your will. But because you're my friend, I'm going to do what you said. And I'm going to lay down my agenda for you, Abraham. See, this is God's character. And if you don't get that, you're going to have a hard row, a hard road to, to walk, not knowing that this friendship goes both ways. See, with the slave, you're not, there isn't any two-way. The slave is you just give me the command and I go do it. That's the bond slave. When you get in the air, right, you're still going to run the empire. You have the, you know, you have the, you know, the responsibility, right? Like the prodigal son and his brother, the brother stayed there the whole time. Not really friends with the dad because he's like, you never threw me a party. You never, right? So, but he's still running the empire, but not friends with the dad. I want to be like where I'm friends with my heirs, right? I would, and this is where I want to be with my, my heavenly father, that I'm friends with him so that we talk back and forth. And that's what his fellowship is, is social equals. We connect and hang out as social equals, as peers. And listen, yes, I never put myself as an equal with God, but he put me as equal with him. I didn't do it. But as you get to know his ways, you begin to grow and the relationship grows into this friendship where we begin to do stuff for each other, where it's not my agenda, Father, it's your agenda. But then when I do have, I have covenant markers. I have certain things in my agenda that I ask God to do. And every time that I've done it, he's done it. The flip side of that is I do whatever he asked me to do, even if it looks like it costs me. 
This is friendship. It goes both ways. I'm not just a friend of God and it's a one-way street. Now, here's the third part in that verse is, the servant doesn't know what his Lord does, but I've called you friends so that you know all the things that I've heard of my father I make known unto you. Plans. So here's the thing. As a friend, I need to know God's plans for a friend, but he also gets to know my plans. And do you even have a plan? Like, if you don't have plans, how are you going to even share them with your father? And, like, I share my plans with my kids and my wife because we're all friends. We don't just have, like, a legal relationship between heirs, right? And my wife is also an heir, right? She's the next one. If I, you know, I passed out of this world, all my stuff goes straight to her. She's the first beneficiary. And then the kids. That's just that's the legal relationship you have when you're married. We're actually friends. We tell each other our plans. I know a lot of people that are married. They're not friends. They don't tell plans. This is where we want to go. You can't, uh, there's no social promotion with God, though. When you're an immature child, you're still like a servant. You only get commands. You don't get to know plans. And you also, (laughs) we'll see this, but there's there's a verse in Isaiah where God says for us to command him. The way he commands us, he said, you command me concerning the works of my hands, and I'll show you things to come concerning my sons, my full-grown. When you're a full-grown son, he gets to command you, and you get to command him. It's reciprocal. That's what friendship is. It's a two-way street. Meditate on that. I mean, I, this is humongous. This is ginormous. If this doesn't motivate you to want to get into his presence and learn his ways and graduate from child, right, from infant to child, toddler to, you know, elementary school to middle school and teenager to be full grown and also go from servant faithful in all the house, obey the commands to get to know the plans and know his ways and experience his glory and his brilliance, I'll tell you what. The power is a byproduct of this. The power is fantastic. That's great. I don't even give a rip about the power, to be honest with you. If I could just be friends with God, that's more. I mean, even I, you know, this week I was praying. I'm like, you know what, Father? Even being your bond slave is enough. It's it's more than enough. Like being the servant, the slave. I, uh, Drew and I and Kimmy watched the uh, Joseph King of Dreams last night, and the night before that, uh, Kimmy, Mick, and Drew and I all watched. Uh, Prince of Egypt, the story of Moses, Jack's on beach week. Good for him. Vacation. Right. So before he has to go back to the Citadel. So we miss him, but we were watching these. Right. So, and then we're, but King of Joseph was a slave. He got sold into slavery and then he's still Pharaoh's slave. He never gets set free. He's the most powerful man in the world and he's a slave. So that's enough being God's slave. But I want to be friends. I want to know the plans. And you know what? It's really great. When he gets it, when he does, when I ask him a favor, he does it. When he asks me a favor, I do it. This is friendship. Lay down our agenda for each other. I want to look at this story because there's a picture of this in the Old Testament with Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David. And so I want to pick up the story. This is like 1063 BC ish, right? First Samuel 17. This is right after or right when. Um, David shows up with Goliath. Now, Saul is the king of Israel. Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. Now, Jonathan is right at 20 years old, maybe 21. Because it, it, back in that time, you could not serve in the military until you were 20. Remember when the children of Israel on the provocation, right? 20 years old and up were the ones that said, we're not going into the land where, you know, grasshoppers in our sight were scared. We're scared. So they didn't go. So 20 years old and up is the, the age when you could be in the military. Jonathan uh, is now a commanding you know, one of the regiments. At the beginning of Saul's reign, it never mentions Jonathan. A few years into Saul's reign, Jonathan takes charge of one of the regiments. So Jonathan is about 20, 21 years old. David is 16. So there's the gap. He's a 16-year-old. He's like a sophomore or junior in high school. And Jonathan's already graduated from the military academy, and he's in charge of the military of a regiment. He's a commander. And he's the oldest son and the heir, the crown prince of Israel to Saul. 
So in First uh, Samuel seventeen thirty two, and David said, "I'm going to read it out of the Amplified, if that's all right, um, so we don't get uh, I have to untangle it all. This is pretty good." And David said, "Let no man's courage fail because of Goliath, your servant, your slave, will go out and fight with this Philistine." Then Saul said to David, "You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him. Man, you're only a young man, sixteen years old. You ain't even out of like you know finishing your sophomore year in high school yet." And this guy has been a warrior since his youth, since he was a young man. And David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion and a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock. And I went out after it and I attacked it and rescued the lamb out of its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I seized it by its whiskers and I struck it and killed it. But your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine read loser, right? That's my emphasis. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted and defiled the armies of the living God. Now see, David knows his father's character and because he knows his ways, he knows his character. He knows the presence of God. The power comes up on him. And David said, and the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, well, go on then and may the Lord be with you. Go ahead. God bless you. Bless his heart. Go ahead. Then Saul dressed David in his garments, put a bronze helmet on his head, and put a coat of mail armor on him. And David fastened his sword over his armor and tried to walk, but he couldn't because he wasn't used to them. Plus, Saul, it says, was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. So Saul's like 6'5", 6'8", 6'9", something like that. And here's David, a 16-year-old, you know, 5'8", 5'9", 5'10". He's probably 5'8". He's small. It says he was young, a little of stature. Remember when he was being anointed, he was he was a runt, you know. And Sam and God said, "Don't look at the outside; look at the heart." Like that, you know. So he can't even move in this armor. So and David said to Saul, "I can't go with these because I have I'm not used to them." So David took them off, and then he took his shepherd's staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones out of the stream bed and put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had that is in his shepherd's pouch with his slingshot in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So he's got this, he's got his walking stick and a slingshot. This is great te- teenagers, man. I, I, I can use a slingshot. I don't need all that fancy schmancy stuff. I don't have, you know, big armor and all that, and I just got this. And the Philistine came and approached David, and he had a shield bearer in front of him. So not only is, you know, Goliath this huge nine-foot-tall dude, but here comes a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked around and saw David, he derided and disparaged him because he was a just a young man and ruddy complexion, but he was handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with a shepherd's stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field today. So then David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armors of Israel, whom you have taunted. And this day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and I'm going to cut off your head and I'll give the corpses of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth so that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel and that the entire assembly may know that the Lord does not save with the sword nor with the spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will hand you over to us. <laughs> Man, what a cocky little guy. I was like, oh, not only am I going to kill you and cut your head off, I'm going to give you the entire army's carcasses to the birds. And when the Philistine arose and came forward to meet David, David ran quickly towards him, right? He's running to the enemy. He's not running away. He's running towards the guns. He runs towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand to his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone penetrated his forehead and he fell to the ground face down. And David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Now he already told him, I'm going to cut your head off, but he got nothing to do it with. So he ran over, stood over the Philistine, grabbed his sword of the giant, drew it out of the sheath and killed him by cutting his head off. And the Philistines saw that their mighty champion was dead, and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah stood up with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the, they fatally wounded Philistines fell along the way to Shamarim and as far as Gath and Ekron. So they're just killing them all the way home. 
And the sons of Israel returned from their pursuit of the Philistines and plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, the giant, and brought it, Goliath, brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his weapons in his tent. That's Goliath's weapons. David had a slingshot and a stick. And when Saul saw David going out against the Philistines, he said to Abner of the army, he said, Abner, who is the son of this? Whose son is this young man? And Abner said, hey, by your life, king, I don't even know. And the king said, well, ask whose son the young man is. And David turns. They don't even know who David is. He comes out of nowhere. <laughs> Saul's like, go ahead, man. You, you know, there ain't no way else doing this deal. And he's like, who is that kid? And when David returned from killing Goliath the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. So here comes David. He's got Goliath. He's like, here you go, king. And Saul asked him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. And in chapter 18, when David had finished speaking with Saul, so he leaves the tent, the soul of Jonathan, that's Saul's oldest son, this 21-year-old captain of the army, was bonded to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now, remember, Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life, his agenda, for his friends. Jonathan, the heir, the crown prince, loves David as himself. And Saul took David that day. He did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Listen. This is, remember, I told you this before. The number one crime back in the day was covenant breaking or adultery. You don't enter into a covenant unless you love somebody the way you love yourself. And so much more that I love you more than I love me. And I love me a lot. And Jonathan stripped himself of his outer robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, if you remember from the Covenant for Rookie series, the first two steps of the nine-step blood covenant is like we exchange coats and we exchange weapons. David had no coat or no weapon. Jonathan just gave it to him. There was no exchange. This is a, a, an example of what the covenant is with us. When we get to God, we got nothing to give him. We got no weapons. We don't have a coat worth that he wants to wear. So he gives us his coat and he gives us his weapons. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and he acted wisely and prospered. And Saul appointed him over the men of war, and it pleased all the people. <laughs> this is pretty awesome. This is pretty awesome. This is a picture of what friendship is. And I want you, we're going to keep looking at this, of what friendship is. See, Jonathan was serious about this, so much so that he was willing to lay down his position as crown prince he was willing to lay down his uh, riches, his position of honor, and willing to lay down his natural life, if so be. But he would give up his kingdom and his inheritance for David. That's what the covenant is. Whatever's mine is yours. I want to look at uh, Samuel. Let's flip over to chapter 19 and verse 1. And now Saul told his son, Jonathan, and all of his servants to kill David. Now, we skipped a bunch of stuff. You could read it on your own, but Saul, really what happens is uh, they say that David killed his ten thousands of Philistines of the enemy, and Saul only killed his thousands, and he gets jealous. So now we have jealousy. Chapter 19 and verse 1. Now Saul told his son, Jonathan, and all his servants to kill David, but Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Remember, they had a covenant. They're friends. So he told David, Saul, my father, is seeking to kill you. Now then, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And as for me, I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. And if I learn anything, then I'll tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, May the king not sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you. And since his deeds have been very beneficial for, to you, for he took his life in his hand and killed the Philistine, the giant Goliath, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all of Israel, and you saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without a cause? 
Here's another thing that you need to understand about friendship. This guy is interceding to the to his father on David's behalf. This is an example, uh, our type of Jesus is Jonathan and we are David. It's a type of it. So you could see it as an example. What Jesus said, we're friends. Jonathan is interceding on David's behalf, not talking bad about him, not maneuvering. That's not a friend, somebody that gossips to somebody. He's only speaking good. I never, we don't say, you'll never hear me say a critical word about my friends. I'll talk to them about it if I have an issue with them, but we don't talk to other people about it, or they're not my friends. And Saul listened to Jonathan and swore an oath, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. That didn't last long, as you'll see here in a minute. So Jonathan called David and told him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence serving him as he was previously. And then there was war again, and out they go. And David went out and brought forth a great victory of the Philistines. There was a great slaughter, and the Philistines fled before him. In verse 9, And an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul and was sitting on his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp in his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he escaped out of Saul's presence so that Saul only struck the spear into the wall. Then David fled and escaped by night. So he goes out to the battle. He has another great victory. He comes back in. He's playing the harp as before. Now this says an evil spirit from the Lord. What happened is that the anointing left Saul. Remember, we talked about this in the power. And the power leaves you. There's a vacuum there. The power, the anointing went on David to be king. That's why he's having these great victories. And what's left is this vacuum. And Saul is just going nuts. And so uh, he is, uh, he's not possessed, but he's being oppressed or influenced by evil spirits. And I know that's just kind of crazy, but then just go with this, right? He tries to kill David. Just get your head around that. Then Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch for him so that he might kill him in the morning. I mean, this is like, this is crazy. And then his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, tells him, hey, if you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael lets David down through a window, right? They tie the bedsheets together, and he sneaks out. Then Michael took the household idol, like so she has like I don't even want to get into this, but anyway, she what she does is she takes the pillows and stuff and some goat's hair and makes it look like he's sleeping in the bed. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she says, He's sick. Saul sends his messengers into the bedroom and they says, Bring him up out of my bed if necessary, so you could kill him. And the messengers came in and there there there's this, you know, the pillow, the dummy, and he's gone. So Saul says to his daughter, Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go that he was escaped? Michael answers Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So she blames David. She's you know, hiding him, but she tells the king, no, uh, it was him. He made me do it. So David fled and escaped and came to Samuel. So look, this whole thing is going on. Again, Saul's trying to kill him. And again, Saul's trying to kill him. Oh, I won't kill him. I'll try to kill him. It, but the friend Jonathan keeps showing up and saving him. Now, in chapter 20, David fled from Naoth into Ramah, and he came to Jonathan and said, What have I done? Where is my guilt? What is my sin before you are against your father that he's seeking my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. My father does nothing important or insignificant without telling me. He does anything. I know. My, my, my father and I are friends. I know everything. So why should he hide this thing from me? It is not so. But David vowed again and said, it is. Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this or he will be worried. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Remember, a friend does whatever each other says. Jonathan says, whatever you say, I'm going to do for you. Look, we have this. Remember, Jonathan is the type of Jesus. David is the type of a believer. Jesus says, like he said, you do whatever I say, but now, right, we also, he will do whatever we say, which you already know. If you ask the Father anything in my name, and he'll give it to you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I was supposed to be sitting at the table to eat with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. 
So this is, this is a week-long feast. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission for me to go to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the entire family. He had a family event. He says, if he says, all right, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, then be certain that he has decided on evil. Therefore, show kindness to your servant, David saying that to Jonathan, because you have brought your servant into covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity or guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father to be killed? Listen, we're in covenant. And if I've done anything wrong, you go ahead and kill me. I'd rather you do it than anybody else. And Jonathan said, far be it from that happening to you. In fact, if I indeed learned that my father has decided to harm you, would I not tell you about it? Listen, man, I always tell you. I tell you everything that my father does. Whatever I know from my father. Remember, that's what Jesus said over in John. I tell you whatever the father says. I call you friend. Whatever I heard of my father, I make it known unto you. Here we go. He said, what I tell you? If I heard it from my father? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father's answer you answers you harshly? And Jonathan said to David, come on, let's go out in the field to talk. So they went out to the field where there was no like NSA, you know, listening. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel is my witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, right? Today, tomorrow, the next day, whatever it is when he, when I find out what's going on, behold, if he has a good feeling towards you, shall I not send word to you and make it known to you? But if it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do also to me, Jonathan, and more if I do not let you know about it and send you away so that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness and faithfulness of the Lord so that I will not die? You shall never cut off your loving kindness and faithfulness from my house, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. He added, may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies, that is, hold them accountable for any harm they inflict on David. And Jonathan made David a vow again because of his love for him. For Jonathan loved David as himself. Then Jonathan said to David, so look, he's reestablishing this covenant. It's for our houses forever. He said, and when you're king, listen, Jonathan is the crown prince. He's going to be king after Saul. He says, nope, the Lord's with you. You're going to be the king. I see this. You're the king, not me. And here's our covenant that our houses, no harm would come to you from me. And if it does, then all these curses would come upon me, that everything that would happen to you would happen to me and all my household. But let's make this covenant. And you'll find out that this covenant lasts. David finds Jonathan's, you know, uh, son who was made lame in an accident, can't walk. He's a paraplegic, sets him up later to fulfill this covenant after Jonathan dies. And if you keep reading through this story, you'll find out that David is saved by Jonathan. They set up this little scheme where Jonathan would shoot an arrow and send a boy after it, one of his servants after it. And if the boy has to, he shoots the arrow past where David's hiding in the field, that's time to go. And so uh, that's what happened. And I want to look at, we'll pick this up at the end um, of chapter uh, 20 and verse 41. And as soon as the boy was gone, so he, he took the boy, here's your weapon. He said, get out of here. He goes, finds David in the field. And as soon as the boy was gone, David got up from the south side behind the mound of stones, and he fell on his face to the ground in submission and respect to Jonathan and bowed three times. Then they kissed one another and wept together, but David wept more because Saul's like definitely going to kill David. Jonathan finds out at the, at the meal. He warns David. Then he sends the servant away, and then they meet each other in private. And Jonathan told David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he stood and left, while Jonathan went into the city, and David went on. This is what friendship looks like. You do what I say, I do what you say. I'm going to lay down my agenda for you, you lay down your agenda for me. Remember, a wise servant 
You start out as a servant. So David was a servant of Saul. He wasn't a king. He wasn't the heir. He wasn't a son. But he ruled over Jonathan, who was the son, and David got the inheritance because he was wise. He knew God's ways. He knew his presence. And you know what he was doing while he was keeping the sheep? That was a lot of that stuff. But he wrote a lot of Psalms, a lot of the book of Psalms he wrote, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He wrote that while he was out there watching the sheep. He wasn't wasting time not pursuing God. Now remember, greater love hath no man than who would lay down his life or his agenda for his friend. You are my friends if you do whatever I say. Two-way street. I want to look at one more thing we have time real quick. In Luke 11, Jesus tells a parable about friendship. I want to look at it because it goes into the definition of what a friend is. Luke 11 and verse 5. I'm, again, I'm going to read this out of the Amplified because it kind of breaks it down a little easier so I don't have to untangle as much King James. Then he, Jesus, said to them, he's teaching, suppose one of you has a friend. A what? A friend. Suppose one of you has a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and he says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for another friend of mine who is on a journey has just come to visit me and I have nothing to serve him. So look, back in the day, they didn't have 24-hour 7-Elevens or the Sphinx or the Quick Trip and Walmart wasn't open, you know, after like five in the afternoon. So it's midnight. He's got nothing. So he goes to the friend's house. He's knocking on the door and he says, listen, another friend came to visit me. I don't have any food to give him. I have nothing to serve him. Open up. And in verse 7, from the inside, that friend says, Do not bother me. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and get you anything. And Jesus says, But I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything just because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence and boldness, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. This guy, because I'm a friend, I'm bold to go interrupt you in the middle of the night to get you to lay down your agenda of sleep. Because I have another friend who I'm laying down my agenda from. I'm, I'm messing with your life so I could take care of this friend, right? So he's calling it, this is what friendship is. I'm bold and I'm persistent. Now, you're not giving it to me because we're friends, but because I won't stop knocking at the door and screaming, no, give me, come on, man, I need to give these guys some chow. That he'll get up and give him whatever he needs. Verse 9, so I say to you, ask and keep on asking and it will be given unto you. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking at the door and it'll be opened unto you. For everyone who keeps on asking persistently receives. And he who keeps on seeking persistently finds. And he who keeps on knocking persistently, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, that is sinful by nature, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask and continue to ask him? See, this is friendship. I'm going to keep knocking on that door. I'm going to keep being bold and persistent. And again, this is two ways. A lot of times we think it's us knocking on God's door. Man, God is it's two-way street. God will keep knocking on your door, keep asking for you, keep seeking for you, and will persistently and boldly follow after you to get what he needs out of you the same way you would for him. The way that you're begging and bawling and squalling God for healing or a financial miracle, he's begging, bawling, and squalling for you to go be willing and obedient. To go get part, to be part of the covenant, to be part of the plan, to know his ways so that he could show you his plan, but definitely do the commands. This friendship is a two way street. Not only am I laying my life and agenda down for God, he's laying his agenda down for me. Not only do I stand at the door and I knock and I ask and I seek and I keep asking and I keep knocking and I keep seeking, he does the same thing. He's coming after me and after you knocking and asking and seeking continuously, persistently. And he's bold, man. Who asks you some bold stuff? If he's not, you're not a friend. 
If God hasn't ever asked you to do anything that was just like, I got to get out of bed in the middle of the night. I mean, more than that. He's asked me to put myself in some situations where uh, shame, rejection, shunning, embarrassment, just to get his word to some people. Asked me to do stuff that I didn't want to do, but he kept bugging me. Remember, faith comes from hearing and hearing and hearing the word of God, the rhema. God will keep telling you the rhema. You're not going to be able to get away with it. If he wants you to do something, right, he'll just keep persistently. And you don't do it because you're friends. You do it because he just won't stop, right? When Jack was growing up, he would be like, Could I? he loves chewing gum. He's little. Can I have some gum? We'd say no. Can I have some gum? No. Can I have some gum? No. Can I have some gum? No. Uh, thanks. I'll take that as a yes. And then go get gum. This is what This is what we're talking about. This is friendship where I just keep, I'm, I'm at it, I'm after it until I get what I want. God does the same thing to us. He'll be after it and at it until he gets what he wants. Otherwise, you're not a friend. But I want to be there where, I remember, Moses, says, Moses was speaking face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, not in dark sayings, directly, apparently. A friend who knows the plans, not just gets the commands, knows the plans. And now we have this where we I lay down my life, not my will, Father, but yours, but you also lay down your agenda for mine. Just like Abraham asked for Ishmael, he got it. We'll look at a story next week when, we're, when Abraham, you know, God gives Abraham the plans and he begins to negotiate with God and he gets it. And if you look at the life of Moses, he's constantly negotiating with God and he gets whatever he asks. Are you getting whatever you want? But if you want that, then you have to give whatever God wants. The covenant is reciprocal. Friendship is, my wife and I have a covenant. It's reciprocal. We're both givers, right? I have to give her a hundred people. Like marriage is 50-50. No, it's a hundred, a hundred. I give a hundred percent. She gives a hundred percent. And now we're having a great covenant relationship. Every friendship is like that. If you have a friend who is just a taker, they're not really a friend. If you have a friend where it's all one way, where it's only you doing what they were, they only call you when they need something. They're not a friend. They're a taker. If they're not looking out for, hey, man, what can I do for you? If they don't know you enough, right? Like I told you, the other week, my kids know what food I like. They know what radio stations I like. They know how I take my coffee. They know when I take my coffee. Hey, can I get you some coffee? Hey, do you, you know, they turn on those certain radio station when I get in their vehicle. Because I took the, they took the time to find out what my ways are, what I like. That's what you do with a friend. I with my wife, right? When I was beginning to date her, I knew what her shoe size was. I still do. I know what her ring size is. I still do. I know what her favorite flowers are. I know what her favorite colors are. I know what foods she likes. I know what music she likes. I know what kind of TV show she likes and which one she doesn't. Because we're friends. I wanted to find out her ways. And in a covenant, so, and what I want to do is go out of my way to make sure that my agenda is on the back burner. I give her whatever she wants. And for a marriage to work great, then that she does the same thing for me. And this is the same thing with your covenant with God or the friendship that Jonathan and David had. They entered into a covenant. That's why I don't have very many friends. Because once you understand what friend actually is, you can't have too many of them. You're... You can't physically, mentally, or emotionally sustain those friendships. You will burn out, and they will literally suck the life out of you unless you have friends that do the same thing back to you and replenish you. If you have people in your life that are takers, they're not friends. And God's not a taker, but I wonder how many of us are actually takers with God. Are we giving God? Like, I'm looking out. What, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Today, how do you want me to act? Right, Because I'm your hands, your feet. My body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. I'm the living sacrifice. I'm the body of Christ. I'm the hands and feet here on the earth. What do you want me to do? What are we looking out for? If you're just all the time being like, well, God, pray, I, I need healing in my body. Oh, I need my finance. My bills ain't getting paid. Oh, God, this. Oh, God, that. And you're just constantly taking. You're not a friend. You're not even a faithful servant because at least a faithful servant just is low maintenance. I just do whatever you tell me. I'm not asking. You don't ask the master anything. When you're the servant, you don't ask for anything. You just do what they tell you. 
I want to be a friend. I love being in the position where I call in a covenant marker with God and he does it. And I could give you specific times when he did. I don't call in that many covenant markers. Because to be honest about it, I don't all the time, you know, I, there's not many times where I fulfilled his covenant marker. When he says, I need you to do this, and I literally have to put, it's 100%, very few times. So I don't, right, so it's reciprocal. The more times that you ask for those covenant markers for God, the more times you're going to have to show up 100% for him. And I mean 100%. I'm just being honest with you. Transparent. 100% is like when I'm cutting mold off the bread for my kids to send them to school, we have nothing. And I'm like, this isn't the covenant. But you do it because he asked you to do it. And it's very temporary. I mean, look, when God said, you know, hey, to Abraham, give me Isaac. I mean, that's a very temporary situation. It only lasts a couple of minutes. That's just craziness, though. 100% all in. I really, he's never asked me to sacrifice that great. Are you willing to put your agenda on the back burner for him? If you are, and then you do it, that's where it says God proves you. He proved Abraham. He proved. It's not that he tests you. You see, people go, he's testing me. No, it's not testing your faith. He's proving your faith. There's a difference. Proving it is judicial evidence. He has to have judicial evidence that you're all in for him to legally be all in with you. If you're only, he's got to have judicial, if you're only 50% in, he can only judicially, legally give you 50%. He has to have judicial evidence that you're in the covenant for him to bless you in the covenant. That's why he's proving you. It's not for him. If you understand at the end, at the great white throne judgment, all this evidence has to be brought up because Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, is going to accuse in court in front of God because God is a just judge. Evidence will be brought forth of all the times, and believe me, Satan's got them, all the times where you didn't act in the covenant, you weren't acting in obedience, where you were in disobedience. And then Jesus, your advocate, is going to bring forth all the, hey, look, this is what I did. Here's the covenant, and here's the, here's the judicial proof that they're in the covenant. Which covers all that other stuff. If you're in the, if you believe Jesus and you're in the covenant, everything else is covered, no matter what Satan says. But you have to have judicial evidence that you're in the covenant. That's what it says about Abraham. It was captured in an image when Abraham was bringing the knife down. He never did have to sacrifice Isaac. He just had to have proof. Got to have proof of his intentions to do it. Proof. As the knife was coming down, God said, "Hang on, we got it. Don't worry about it. We got this. You don't need to do that." Right, and then a then a lamb showed up, or a ram showed up, and that was the sacrifice. We had to have judicial evidence. It says in Hebrews, it was captured in an image. That image will be brought out at that great white throne as as judicial evidence, as proof. That's what proving is as proof, factual evidence. Abraham was in covenant. Here's the covenant marker. God called in a covenant marker, gave it to him, and then the covenant marker of Jesus was given to Abraham. Abraham was the friend of God. Now, friends prove each other. Not test each other. Testing is to see whether you are or not. Proof is building a track record of reliability. My wife and I have a track record over 30 years. Proof, 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 proof. In fact, there's so much proof about my wife that you literally, you couldn't tell me some earth-shattering thing. Like, oh, man, hey, man, she's committing adultery. Wrong. There's no way. I have so many proofs of her character that whatever you're telling me, if it doesn't line up with those proofs, I automatically don't believe it. This is friendship. This is the covenant. This is where we want to go. Lay down your agenda, no greater love. He lays down his agenda, no greater. Look, Jesus laid down his agenda for us. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Went to the cross, went into hell. That wasn't his agenda. He laid that down so that we could be joint heirs, so that we could go from servant child to full-grown son to friend. 
and know the presence. Don't waste this. Don't waste getting to know his presence. Don't get waste getting to know his ways. Don't waste going from servant, getting commands into the ways and getting the plans. Next time, we'll talk about the plans. Right now, just understand the friendship is a two-way street. I lay down my agenda. He lays down his agenda. Greater love hath no man laying down our agendas for each other. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words sealed in our hearts. Help us to understand that as we lay down our agenda, you lay down yours. In fact, you laid down yours first. We only love Jesus because he loved us first. He laid down his agenda first. You laid down your agenda first for us, Father. That we have a debt we cannot repay. That we're bought with a price we're not our own anymore. And I want to go from servant, from slave, to full-grown son and heir, and to friend. And I thank you for that opportunity, Father, and I won't waste it. Father, I pray that no one in the sound of this teaching wastes it either. In Jesus' name, amen.